Friends, before we turn to Scripture this morning, I want to share a couple of words about what we're doing today. On this Pledge Dedication Sunday, for the past few years, we've invited the congregation to participate in a shared ritual. And occasionally, there's some misunderstanding about that, so I want to be clear. First, let's be honest and acknowledge that settings in the church where we talk about money can cause some discomfort or anxiety, and that's totally understandable. On the one hand, we all know far too many stories of churches that engage in high-pressure fundraising tactics, manipulating their members into hoarding piles of cash so their pastors can buy private jets and fancy cars. My 12-year-old Subaru Impreza in the parking lot is perhaps assurance enough that this church does not take that approach. On the other hand, some churches, perhaps in reaction to those first kind of churches, swing far in the other direction and are awkward, embarrassed, even a little apologetic to ever talk about financial giving. And we don't think that is a faithful approach either. Among the many reasons why, here are two. First, as Reformed Presbyterians, we believe that God is sovereign, which is really just a fancy way of saying that Everything, and I mean everything, is of God and is from God. Which means that everything that we have is a gift from God, a blessing from God entrusted to us to steward on God's behalf. And so it's an act of heartfelt worship and profound gratitude that we invest in what God has given to us into the church and is our participation in response to our own prayer Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The second reason related to the first is that we have the joy and privilege of partnering with one another and with God in the ministry and mission of this church that is life-changing, heart-turning, community-building, justice-achieving, peace-making, light-shining, love-nurturing, bridge-building, and world-turning. And God knows the world needs that now more than ever. And all of that glorious service is done in part in this family of faith called First Presbyterian, and in part through the financial support that keeps this church thriving and growing and moving forward. So we're neither here to manipulate you or to be embarrassed, but instead to invite you to invest in the work of a God who as the Apostle Paul reminds us, is able to do abundantly far more than even we could ask or imagine. That's something that we can do together with enthusiasm and hope for a deeper faith and a better world for all of us. So, in a few moments following the sermon, we'll invite everyone, if they wish, to come forward and place into the baskets in front of your sections, there's three in front of the three sections, your pledge card your financial commitment to this congregation for 2024. And this year we also have a time and talent pledge that you can share as well, indicating the ways that you are already or would like to newly be engaged in serving the church. Some of you received these cards in the mail, and if you didn't, they're in the pew racks or in the back or in the office as well. There's a couple of ways this morning that you can choose to respond to that invitation. Some of you, I know, have already brought your pledge cards filled out today, and you're anticipating that opportunity to bring them forward. Others have already sent them in to the church or plan to send in your pledge cards by mail or 
to make that indication online or by phone, in which case we invite you to participate in this symbolic ritual by simply bringing forward either a blank card or you can write already done it and put it into the basket. Or if you and your household are still prayerfully discerning your pledge, that's okay. You can bring a card forward that says IOU on it. <laughs> really, we know that sometimes you're still in the process of discerning. And we'll know to expect something later, even as you make the symbolic commitment today. In addition, this is also a time that you can bring forward your tithes and offerings so that whatever you would ordinarily put in the offering boxes on your way out, you can bring them forward today. We recognize some of you this morning are friends or visitors, and we're not asking you to make a contribution today, but you're welcome to participate if you would like in a gift to God's wider church. If you're not able to physically come forward or you're just not comfortable doing that, you're certainly welcome to hand your pledges and offerings to someone in the pew next to you to bring forward if they look trustworthy enough for you to choose to do that. We want you to make the choice that is comfortable and meaningful for you as you participate today. The reason why we invite you to participate in this ritual is that by taking a stand and moving forward, both literally and symbolically, we share together as a community of faith a powerful action of supporting the mission and ministry of this congregation. To be clear, a pledge is an intention on your part, and we know that life circumstances can change over the course of the year. And so you're welcome to contact the business office if your life circumstances do change, and let them know this year. We understand that. And all of that information is held in confidence by the business office. Another important reason why we ask you to pledge is because these pledges provide a guideline for our church leaders to use as they prayerfully and responsibly create a proposed balanced budget for the church each year. Now, I say it every year at this time, on the occasions when we talk about church finances, so some of you that have been around for a while can now begin repeating after me in unison as you know this speech well. We know that God did not come to earth in Jesus Christ to teach and lead us, to heal and inspire and feed us, so that Christ's disciples across time and space could form communities of the faithful called the church and balance an annual budget. That is not our purpose in life. That's not why we're here. But when we do responsibly create and manage a balanced budget, then we don't spend any time hand-wringing or hand-extending, figuring out what or who to cut. And instead, we focus all of our time and energy on discerning and creating, leading and serving in the joyful and life-changing ministries and mission of this congregation and I'm proud to say that our team has successfully navigated balanced budgets in each of the last six years, especially through very challenging seasons and doing all of it while erasing all of our debts and strengthening our foundation so that we can pass off an even more vibrant community of faith to future generations and today be the beacon of light and love for our community that we're called to be. Can I get an Amen. Great. That's what we're about today. But we turn, as we always do, 
to Scripture to see what God has to say to us as well. We've been following the teachings of Jesus in the latter part of Matthew's Gospel this fall, and we continue now with the selection from Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14. Listen to God's word for us today. For it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. The one who had received five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with two talents also came forward saying, Master, see, you handed over to me two talents, and I have made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I do not sow, and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So... Take the talent from him and give it to one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Friends, yes, even this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord, for you alone are our rock and our redeemer, and let all God's people say, amen. Many of us are likely familiar with the idea that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, or said another way, it's a matter of the power of perception. This morning, I'd like to offer a view of Jesus' parable of the talents that expands this idea to consider that, in addition to beauty, maybe anger and fear, as well as perhaps wonder and joy, might also be in the eye of the beholder. Let me begin by acknowledging that there are many ways to interpret the parables of Jesus, including this one. Now, a common reading of today's scripture lesson is that the master... God, or God made known to us in Jesus Christ, gives us his disciples talents and expects us to invest them and then handsomely rewards us upon his return 
when we have done so successfully. Otherwise, if we fail to do so, we're cast into outer darkness like the third servant. However, this interpretation, while it can be meaningful and motivational for some, it can also be problematic. For one thing, the image of God as a rich landowner who rewards the successful and casts out the poor doesn't easily align with the nature and character of God that we found throughout Scripture. Another challenge is that the focus or the movement of the parable itself draws us towards the conclusion, as if we're supposed to focus more on and learn from the experience of the third servant and pay less attention to what happens to the first two servants. In that case, notice how the third servant says that he is terrified of his master. He believes his master to be harsh and aggressive in his dealings. And we have no evidence, at least at this point in the parable, that his master is in fact this way. But the servant believes that and is afraid. And so he's paralyzed by that fear from acting. Fear will do that to a person. As a result, he doesn't do anything with the money that's been given to him. He's terrified that if he invests it, if he risks it, if he puts it out there in the world, that he may lose it and make his master angry. By contrast, we don't really know the perceptions or feelings of the other servants about their master or the motivation for their choices. We only know that they went out and multiplied what had been given to them. Did they do this because they loved their master? Because they anticipated the generous response to enter into the master's joy? Because they were natural-born risk-takers? We don't know. We only know that the third servant's perception of the master that so terrified him was not shared by the first two servants. They saw something different, and that changed everything about their experience and their behavior, their choices, their actions. And I wonder if we might think about how true that is in our everyday life, both in little ways and in big consequential ways. What we expect often affects what we experience and then impacts what we do. For example, if you think that a more expensive bottle of wine tastes better, then it probably does to you. If you think that a particular make and model of car handles better, then it probably does for you. If you think that your boss at work is an effective leader or you think that they're a jerk, that will surely color your experience and your interactions with that person. Or here's a timely one. Whether you perceive that your time with extended family this week is going to be a joyful feast or a nightmare, that will surely influence your experience and probably some of your behavior this week. Now, what about in other more consequential ways? Do you view conflict as something awful and to be avoided at all costs? then it probably will be. Do you instead imagine conflict as a chance to grow and to stretch and learn? If so, then you'll likely have a different experience. Is crisis a threat or an opportunity? Is diversity of thought a challenge to overcome or a gift to be embraced? Again and again, our experience of life is so very deeply shaped by our, our perceptions and our expectations. And with that in mind, maybe this parable is not so much about 
how things are going to be, for it doesn't directly reference the kingdom of heaven. Maybe this is not prescriptive of the way things ought to be or one day will be. Maybe it's descriptive of the way things are sometimes. Because right now, some people perceive as God, perceive of God as a harsh master, one who rewards the successful and discards the lowly. We have a name for that in our country. It's called the prosperity gospel. Now, it may be that the master is indeed all the things that the servant fears, but maybe the master is reacting as much to the servant's characterization of him, playing, as it were, the role assigned to him. I'm not sure. What I am sure of is that what we expect of a given situation or event or person can very much determine our experience and then shape our behavior. And I have a hunch that the same is true of our perceptions of God. I think each of us has a fairly clear, if even unspoken, expectation of God that shapes our experience of God profoundly. Or to put it another way, I think we carry around with us a picture of God and our experience of God rarely strays very far from that picture. For some of us, God is a kind and loving, benevolent parent who calls us beloved children. For others, God is stern and judgmental. For some, God is protective, and for others, God is always on the verge of anger. For some, God is kind, and for others, God is a crotchety old man yelling at us, to get off of my lawn. Now to be fair and a bit more serious, some of us have faced extraordinary challenges in our lives, trauma and grief, and it's understandable that we might question a belief or a perception of a God that is good and all-powerful, desiring for each of us abundant and then eternal life. These pictures shape not just how we think about God, but how we actually experience so many events in our day-to-day -day life that we connect often unconsciously to God and to our faith. We know that people, for good reason, may perceive God and God's local church as judgmental or hypocritical or irrelevant. If you think the church is just nonsense or worse, is harmful, then your filters are more likely to notice the examples that support your perception and affirm that belief, and that a life motivated by faith and the values and virtues of faith don't matter, don't make a difference. And in that case, you would understandably bury your talent in the ground and walk away. And this, friends, is why what we actually do here matters so much. Day by day, person by person, we show up as a family of faith. We gather to acknowledge God's goodness and God's blessings. We offer songs of praise and prayers of our shared joys and concerns. We learn the story of God and the life of Jesus. We practice asking for forgiveness and receiving mercy so that we might do that the rest of our week as well. We nurture friendship here and build meaningful communities with and for one another. We choose with the Spirit's strength and guidance to carry ourselves with grace and peace out into a world that seems increasingly moving in the other direction. We model civility and curiosity. We offer our hands and feet to be Christ's body, extending compassion and kindness 
and generosity as we consistently, faithfully show up for God and for one another in these ways, we're able to help each other see God's love in action, which cannot help but lift our perceptions of and then real experience of God's love in each of our lives. Here's one example that came across my desk recently. Someone that has been around for a while at First Press, but made the decision this past year to join our congregation, shared with me some of his own experience in an email. This person writes, I realized after seeking and finding refuge for several years in the quiet waters offered by this church that I should no longer be adrift. Now is the time to tie my boat to the dock, the dock that is First Presbyterian. It's time for me to stop going it alone and embrace a spiritual home with those who have offered me their outstretched arms of welcome without ever expecting anything in return. I don't know where the winds and currents of life will take me on this journey, but I do know God, as always, will provide and steer me on the right course. I want to be known by my commitment to God and to a community that's known by their commitment to God and to serving others. Can I get an amen? amen. Sisters and brothers in Christ, we're not here to brainwash you or manipulate you. We're not here looking for a handout so that we can preserve some outdated institution. We're here to invite you to be a part of what God is doing in this family of faith, to experience for yourself the warmth and the welcome of this congregation, our vibrant witness as a downtown church, the shared vision that continues to lead us towards deeper discipleship and greater impact in our world. With joy and hope, we're invited to share a picture of God demonstrated in our own lives on display for the world to see, a God who loves us so much and cares so deeply about how we treat each other, a God who loves us so much that God will come in the person of Jesus and take on our lot and our life, sharing our hopes and dreams, our fears and failures, and demonstrates the power of self-sacrificial love so that we might have life abundant and life eternal. Yes, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, as is our perception of God, which then affects our experience of God and then our actions on behalf of or in partnership with God. Because not only beauty, but joy and wonder, grace and hope, are also in the eye of the beholder. Amen.